Back to the beginning. You got it now? Get it. I die. I So as you know, seeing the uh, seeing the face of God is impossible. We learn from the text. Um, that's the answers to theodicy. Theodicy: why the good why the good suffer and why the wicked prosper. Um, we can see the back of God, and as we looked at in our text last time, seeing the tefillin knot, the tefillin knot, the divine tefillin knot. Um, so in any case, this is a reminder that to be Yaakov, to be Jewish people, is to be yearning, to be in a process of yearning, to always be um, content, but discontent, right? Uh, content on a gratitude level, but discontent on a, on a yearning level, theologically, morally, for, um, for what life could be, for what the world could be. So thank you for joining. It's great to see you all. And um, we are here in our 23rd Malacha, our 23rd Malacha, which is Tofair, sewing, Boy, I could have I could have written pages and pages on sewing, but I kept it to four. <laughs> In our previous malacha of kosher tying a knot, we looked at connecting two substances. The malacha of tofer, however, looks at connecting two substances via a third substance to make them one. Get it? Kosher tying a knot, two substances tied together. Tofer sewing, two substances connected, but by using a third one. Sewing was done in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle, to combine woven cloths, using thread to connect one piece of cloth to another. 
On a practical level today, Tofair goes beyond just sewing and would include acts like stapling or gluing or taping. It would not, however, include buttoning since items do not become fused together when buttoned together. The same is true for using safety pins or Velcro. It also doesn't apply to temporary attachments like disposable diapers. Just as kosher tying a knot had a partner malacha of matir untying a knot, so to our malacha this week of tofer sewing has a partner malacha with what we'll be discussing next week of korea, tearing or unsewing. Now, tofer relates to the process of cognition. One of the many reasons that every individual thought we have matters is because our thoughts are fixed together. They are sewn together. This is why through new experiences and new thoughts, our memories are not verbatim replicas of the experiences we remember. Rather, our memories represent thoughts as they developed and evolved in our memory, right? Just a reminder that um, in developmental psychology, it, it is well understood today that memory is not placed into a storage bank and then retrieved, but rather memory is constantly being reconstructed in relationship to our new experiences. Someone just joined who's not on mute. Oh, all better. So our memories are constantly reconstructed in relationship to new experiences and new thoughts. They never remain pure, quote unquote, pure, in that we can access them in their original form. Um, this is also why, I mean, I don't want to get too legal here because this is a complicated legal matter, but this is also why um, memory in a legal, uh, in a, in, in a legal hearing um, can and maybe should lose its legal validity after a certain amount of time um, because memory does in fact get become reconstructed. So that's an interesting question that emerges. Rav Cook writes in Orota Kodesh, uh, a reminder in Rav Cook's work, Orot, that is his particularistic work about Jewish people. Orota Kodesh is his universalistic work about humanity. Here's what he writes. Each body of thought has its own logic and all ideas are tied to each other by a systematic relatedness. There is no such thing as a vain or useless thought since each, each emanates from the same source in the divine wisdom. If there are thoughts that appear futile or empty, the futility and the emptiness are only in the outer garb in which these thoughts are enwrapped. But if we probe into all their inwardness, we shall find that they too offer us the sustenance of life. And as man grows in the scale of perfection, he draws upon all ideas of his own and those of others for, for the kernel of abiding truth. He is made more perfect through them and, and they through him. Um, so here we see this idea of that emerges for a Kabbalist of the interconnectedness of ideas, of the conscious, of the subconscious, of the unconscious, and, um, and how those interact with each other. And thus the idea uh, that a, a Matshava Zara, as they say in Hasidut, a Matshava Zara, a foreign thought, it should be welcomed. In, in a misnagdish idea, in a, in a rationalist approach, if you're in prayer and a foreign thought enters, or if you're studying Torah and a foreign thought enters, it is a, it's a, it's a test. It's a threat. You got to get rid of it. You got to push it out. In Hasidic thought, in the, in the more uh, uh, spiritual uh, uh, 
Kabbalistic mystical approach, a machtavazara is also from God, a foreign thought, because all thought is interconnected. And that machtavazara, that foreign thought can be elevated through the spiritual experience as well. Now, it's also true that we have the ability to allow some thoughts to suppress the fullness of the rest of our being, rather than allowing the interconnectedness of experience and thought to evolve naturally. So there, there might be some place for control here. Rabbi Erwin Kula, who we recently had at VBM, explains this notion pretty well, I think. He writes, our ideas about life often act as protective coding. We know what life is like, and so we don't have to experience its myriad nuances. We sentence life to exile. Life doesn't change its way. We too often refuse what life offers. We deplete experience in different ways. One can be too realistic. One can be too fantastic. One can be too scientistic. One can be overly fanatical and zealous. Rather than have a war between these different dimensions of experience, it's much more fruitful to keep open the possibility that each have a voice, that each have a say in the play of voices, and to see what happens. And so seeing the bigger picture, the full tapestry sewn together of human experience is one way we might think of the value of the study of religion and of comparative religion from a perspective of theological pluralism. The late scholar of religious studies, Houston Smith, writes in his book, famous book, The World's Religions, from a purely human standpoint, the wisdom traditions are the species most prolonged and serious attempts to infer from the maze of this side of the tapestry, the pattern which on its right side gives meaning to the whole. As the beauty and the harmony of the design derive from the way its parts are related, the design confers on those parts a significance that we, seeing only scraps of the design, do not normally perceive. We could almost say that this belonging to the whole in something of the way the arts of a painting suggest is what religion is all about. And here is a case for traditionalism that in science, it makes no sense, aside from the history of science, perhaps, to give uh, weight to scientific studies hundreds of years old, right? We're most interested in the empiricism of our day that has standed the test of of, of research and uh, empirical scrutiny. Um, but in, in, in religion and in comparative religions, there are ideas um, which um, have survived uh, over the eras and um, uh, need not simply be disproved in our time. Of course, there's these questions we keep coming back to of the tensions between progress and tradition. But the idea here of there being a, um, a history of interpretation of reality, of, of an attempt to paint a, paint a long, um, a long uh, a historical tapestry of, of how uh, human experience is understood and that of which is beyond. Now, going from global religion closer to home to American culture, consider these words from former President Barack Obama from his book, The Audacity, the Audacity of Hope. If we Americans are individualistic at heart, if we instinctively chafe against a past of tribal allegiances, traditions, customs, and cases, it would be a mistake to assume that this is all we are, just individuals. Our individualism has always been bound by a set of communal values, the glue upon which every healthy society depends. 
we value the imperatives of family and the cross-generational obligations that family implies. We value community, the neighborliness that expresses itself through raising the barn or coaching the soccer team. We value patriotism and the obligations of citizenship, a sense of duty and sacrifice on behalf of our nation. We value a faith in something bigger than ourselves, whether that something expresses itself in formal religion or ethical precepts. And we value the constellation of behaviors that express our mutual regard, regard for another, honesty, fairness, humility, kindness, courtesy, and compassion. In every society and in every individual, these twin strands, the individualistic and the communal, autonomy and solidarity are intention. And it has been one of the blessings of America that the circumstances of our nation's birth allowed us to negotiate these tensions better than most. And so we sew together a nation by sewing together the individualistic desires with the collectivist impulse. We are a melange that honors diversity, but also honors the collective space of tolerance and collaboration that we in inhabit together. Within that culture, Within that culture, we must ensure that while individuals have the freedom to pursue their dreams, that we also maintain a collective responsibility for those whose entry has been blocked. In his work, Discourse on the Origin of Inequality, Jean-Jacques Rousseau was quite critical of socialization, arguing that it leads to amour propre, self-love, a force driving people to constantly compare themselves to one another and to seek happiness through dominating one another. Mass exploitation inevitably emerges where the rich, by and large, deceive the poor to believe that they truly have access to equality, he argues. In his work, The Social Contract, Rousseau further argues, men are born free, yet everywhere are in chains. It's often argued among philosophers that he, offer, he offered the foundation for modern human rights and for democratic principles as we know them today. And so one of the questions that emerges in regards to justice and freedom is how can we punish others who aren't free? How do we punish others who aren't free? For example, if one is a hard determinist, how can anyone be punished at all? It isn't their fault they committed a crime. It's because of their traumatic upbringing or their DNA or the situation they found themselves in or because of their fundamentalist indoctrination, or due to their deep poverty and desperation, etc. Indeed, according to the just deserts retributivist approach, they don't deserve any punishment at all. A consequentialist, on the other hand, can argue that even if they don't deserve it, the punishment keeps society safe by excluding the one who can harm others. But can the utilitarian go too far? What if they argue that we should grossly torture an individual or punish them excessively for the good of broader society to deter others? And so a third possible approach to avoiding punishment of avoiding punishment by of engaging excessive punishment could be a model of self-defense. We require someone with COVID to quarantine not because they deserve punishment and not to deter others, but rather to defend ourselves collectively from the potential harm. We may choose as a community, a community to bar entry to those who, who willfully and ideologically deny science, the scientific evidence of vaccination, not to be mean-spirited, 
towards those um, who wish to enter but reject science, but merely to protect seniors and other community members who need to under who need to know once a vaccine is proven safe that they can feel safe in our community. One who has various serious mitigating factors as to why they harmed another still must be punished, but not necessarily because they deserve it, nor to deter others, but because we must defend ourselves. Of course, the mass incarceration system in America is tragically broken. The wealthy or powerful sometimes derive profit, financial or otherwise, upon the incarceration of others, minorities in particular. To give one statistic to demonstrate one dimension of the problem, America, consi America consists of only 5% of the world's population, and yet has 25% of the world's incarcerated population. The extremely high recidivism rate shows that our harsh approach is not working. In the three primary realms of justice, criminal justice, distributive justice, and social justice, right, just to oversimplify those, criminal justice, we're talking about, about prison and courts, distributive justice, we're talking about taxation and how wealth is distributed, and social justice, we're talking about issues uh, socially around, around gender and race and the like. We reflect on how our philosophy of freedom versus determinism affects the ideals we strive for. And so, as President Obama points out, we must figure out how to keep the individual's rights and freedoms intact while honoring the needs of the collective. It's quite complicated. And so we sew and then we unsew. It's not one garment, one American garment that's finished at the Constitution, but an ever-evolving sewing and unsewing of many different garments, of legislation, of social norms, of judicial uh, precedents, of communal policies. And just as we work to build our community and society, we can imagine God above sewing together this world in partnership with us. Consider this teaching. I love this. Consider this amazing teaching from the great 20th century Musar teacher, Rav Shlomo, Shlomo Volbi, who we've talked about before here, the, uh, of blessed memory, from, in his book, Ali Shor. The sages relate that the biblical figure, Hanoch, was a shoemaker. Over every stitch that he sewed in a pair of shoes, he would perform unifications of the heavenly realms. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, the founder of the Musar movement, explained what form these unifications took. Hanukh invested careful thought and intent into each stitch. His intention was that each stitch go forward, go toward creating a comfortable and sturdy shoe so that the owner would be able to get the maximum benefit out of it. When an individual infuses, infuses loving kindness and love of other human beings into, the, into their work, this is the greatest form of unifications. Now, what I love about this teaching here is that it combines Musar, Hasidut, the workplace, the God, and ethics into one idea. It is to say, whatever our physical work is, however we understand our work in the world, our form of service that with each stitch that we sew into that shoe, the shoemaker is uniting the name of God because their intention is that the shoe should be stable and sturdy for the person who wears this shoe. Every stitch I sew is an act of loving kindness for another human being and thus uniting God's name in the heavenly realm. 
this powerful idea is that each stitch can be sewn with deep intentionality and a spirit of loving kindness, where others might think that a given occupation, such as a shoemaker, is too lowly for their tastes. Any action done with the proper mindset can elevate the actor to the heavens. In the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., even if it, if a, that, that quote doesn't match my quote. Okay. Uh, okay. If a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets as well as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here is a great street sweeper who does his job well. This is from, um, ex, um, from uh, the, his famous street sweeper speech when he spoke to this union. Um, about how they should view the dignity of their work as street sweepers. With such a mindset, we can infuse a deep sense of purpose into all we do to foster the creativity that was divinely modeled for us with the primordial creation. Consider this idea from Rabbi Eliyahu Dessler in his famous book, Michtav, de Eliyahu, Michtav Me Eliyahu. Even if it falls your... Every moment in the life of every creature facilitates a unique revelation of godliness. This is the idea behind the concept mentioned in our daily daily prayers, that God each day constantly renews creation. That every moment God is renewing creation. For each moment is a self-contained universe. The creation of each moment is the creation of a new world. This is awesome. I mean, think about this, that every moment of every living being's life is a moment of of a renewal of creation, a recreation of the world, right? In the inter inter intersubjectivity of the soul and of and of the world, of godliness and of and of the human spirit. Indeed, in knowing in knowing our purpose well, our individual purpose, we avoid comparison with others which is what Rousseau was talking about. This helps us to sew together a society where everyone's talents are actualized without jealousy. Here, here we're going to go back to Rabbi Shalom Volbi. He writes, an individual who knows themselves and is aware of their nature and who knows that whatever God has given them is a wondrous gift, if they, if they will only take advantage of their talents and strengths, they will attain all desirable traits. Such an individual does not suffer from jealousy or envy another person, person's lot in life. Do not compare yourself to others. Have faith in your creator that God has given you all your spiritual needs. Think, I just love that, that this idea of jealousy stems from a lack of clarity of one's purpose. What am I here to do? What are my talents? What are my gifts? Right? What is my purpose? Um, I was thinking about this this morning. It was just amazing. You know, our, um, today is our four-year-old's birthday, um, our four-year-old daughters. And um, none of the other kids in the house were jealous. Uh, so Shoshana had this amazing task uh, for, for months. Um, our daughter has been saying, I want an Elsa cake. Everything is Elsa these days. I want an Elsa cake, you know, from Frozen. <laughs> I want an Elsa cake. And, and we're like, kosher vegan Elsa cake. Where are we going to buy this thing? We can't. And so for months researching, how are we going to make an Elsa cake? Finally getting a doll and sticking the doll inside a ice cream cake and having this. Shoshana spent the entire Sunday 
you know, building this ice cream cake with a doll inside. And this moment this morning, is she going to cry? Is she going to be, is she going to be okay? And, and just seeing the delight in her face to receive this Elsa cake and seeing none of the other siblings being jealous in ways that sometimes are like, oh, why isn't it my birthday? Or where's my cake or whatever? And them just appreciating it. You know, this moment of them appreciating her, her and her celebration. And um, this idea of jealousy as being a spiritual problem, a spiritual problem of uh, not how we relate to the other, but really originating in how we understand our own spiritual place in the world um, and deepening the gift that we have and why that's our gift and, um, and that someone else's gift uh, is something else. Of course, it's a, a, a whole different layer of problem when it's materialistic jealousy as opposed to a talent uh, jealousy. So this, what he's talking about here is indeed a high level, but it's what we're striving for together, to be our best and to love others being their best. That will enable us to not only sew together a societal fabric of bringing together our fates and destinies, but to be that merged fabric as we allow our unique individualities to act together. Okay, friends, let's open up the conversation. Oh, I stuck to my time today. I stuck to my time today. Uh, it's still supposed to be 20, not 25, but uh, our, our, our nigun went a little long. So uh, let's open up the floor for questions and thoughts and disagreements. Don't forget to unmute yourself. So if we sew a common fabric, next week we're going to unsew it. What does that mean? Ah, well, you, Eileen, you're going to have to wait for next week. <laughs> next week. Yes, next be a relationship. Yeah. Because we've been building on all the things that you do to create fabric, to create a garment in the past couple of weeks. So once we create this garment, why would we want to? uncreated you know it's an amazing thing because um i was i was cursed as as some of you may have be also to be an anti-procrastinator and so always kind of striving for things to be done to be complete and yet if you have a broad enough agenda in life the work is never complete right and so um it it, it really is a, a challenge to um to to be someone who really desires the completion of work. Um, and if we are people, um, we, we can be quite disappointed if we're constantly striving for the completion um, because it won't feel the same on the other side. Um, and so we may feel like, wow, this is great. I finished the sewing. And yet we will quickly realize that the sewing is never finished. We will need to now start a new garment or we will need to start unsewing this garment because we're going to see some imperfections. We're going to see some changes. We're going to see that that garment fit, fit this person well, but now it's going to be hand down for this person. And they're going to need a different color. They're going to need a different patch. They're going to need a different size. And so we're going to constantly be re-sewing. You know, this is particularly complicated in how we sew together our communal discourse. Yeah. Um, there are, oh, someone just came off mute. There we go. Thank you. Um, uh, for example, there are people who hate quote unquote, um, uh, political correctness. There are other people who love the new lingo of the day. And then there's people in between. 
who kind of embrace it, but kind of go a little more slowly. Um, and there's some legitimate questions there about how quickly um, our language should change for identities and the like. And there's different opinions on such matters. And um, this is an interesting case of how um, if one wants to sound, um, you know, uh, unfoolish in the most progressive circles, one on a weekly basis will need to kind of um, adapt to the new language that's being used to not be canceled. Um, you know, in a certain in a certain space, there's a constant unsewing of the kind of uh, communal discourse, um, and it's kind of intentional. It is subversive. It's subversive to kind of dismantle the hierarchy of who controls the language, um, that it shouldn't be traditionally placed. It should be displaced. Um, and, and, and that emerges in some other, in other camps too, beyond the realm of social language, in terms of how we think of the unsewing, um, the, the unsewing process. Think, for example, of the changing of traditions that are handed down from parent to child. Traditionalists love to maintain the smells of that their parents provided for them on holidays, the tastes they provided, the songs they provided, right? The practices they provided. They want to replicate that continuity. Traditionalists love this. You don't have to call yourself a traditionalist. You could be a nostalgia, you can, someone who loves nostalgia. Uh, it can be in a psychological category rather than a, than a religious category. But, um, but there's others who love to un intentionally unsow that who love to um, dismantle what's been inherited uh, intentionally. Um, and, and that's complicated. Think about someone who was raised ultra-Orthodox and now has to go through the lifelong trauma of leaving that community. There, are, uh, there is a, there is a, a um, fluctuation in this person's life between liberation and trauma. To be liberated from the ultra-Orthodox grasp and to be traumatized by having that displacement. Um, if you if you know anyone or if you've seen any of these films, the films are highly inaccurate. Um, I mean, there's value to these films that you've seen on Netflix and the like that talk about people who've left the ultra orthodox community. But many from that world who have left talk about why they're, they're those are challenging films for them as well. Um, it's also true for the quote unquote Bal Teshuva. The Baal Teshuvah is the one who was raised, uh, I'm going to use their lingo here, in the secular world, by which they mean non-Orthodox, and now is in the ultra-Orthodox world, and call themselves a Baal Tshuva. They are, they were, they're a, they're a repentant, a repentant. What's the word? Repentant? Um, someone who has, um, has displaced themselves from their previous world, and is oftentimes told to create discontinuity. They shouldn't eat in their parents' homes. They shouldn't go back to their old communities. They should cut off old relationships. And so both those who are raised in the ultra-Orthodox world and leave that, or those who are raised in the secular world, or reform, or conservative, or the like, it's all equal in, that, in the ultra-Orthodox world. It's all traif. Um, and now move into that world, um, have this discontinuity, which has a level of liberation for them and a level of trauma for them as well. And so, um, lots more to say about that. But but let's take let's take some of us here. Uh, I'm not including myself because I have some continuity and some discontinuity in my own life. But let's say you're someone who has a lot of continuity, that your life more or less looks like your parents' life, 
right? Of course, 2020 is nothing like 1950 or 1970 um, in a lot of ways. But let's say in a lot of ways, your life is very similar to what your parents' life was like. And your practices, you strive to, for them to look a lot like what they looked like. You serve gefilte fish specifically because your grandmother loved gefilte fish. You have herring because your grandfather, your zady, loved herring. You got schnapps, not because you love schnapps, but because it's a it's the minhag, it's the custom of the home, right? And so... Um, uh, this may to some sound boring or uninteresting and to others be incredibly powerful and meaningful to have these kind of things. And I'm talking about food, but of course this goes well beyond food. Um, to pray the Amidah, to pray the Amidah, to say, to say these tefillot that have been recited um, uh, for centuries, for centuries, indeed millennia in some cases can be very powerful. So how do we think about the sewing and unsewing? This is also a part of the machloket in the Talmud, the, the disagreement, do we add words to our prayers or not? One Talmudic approach says, oh, the spontaneity, the personal meaning of adding personal words to your prayer, why would you not do that? Prayer from the heart, that's beautiful. The other Talmudic approach says, no, no, the less you add, the better. Put your intentionality your heart and intentionality to those words. The more you can channel that historical tradition and that authenticity, the better. Um, so where do we sew together and where do we unsew? Then there's the changing. Then there's the changing, um, the, the, the changing of, of liturgy. Okay, that was too long-winded of an answer. Someone else, please, on anything here. Um, I think I it's knowledge. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Thank you. Um, just thinking back to my own profession, which you know, it's pharmacist. As knowledge comes, as new knowledge comes, it's sewing and unsewing. I mean, when I graduated, certain meds would never have been using congestive heart value. We were told, you don't use them. End of story. And then all of a sudden, they find little doses work, and a medium dose works even better. So it's constant sewing and sewing. Think about COVID-19, what we've learned in the last year. The beginning, yeah, mask probably won't make a difference. Now we know that a triple layer mask makes a difference. Not only does it help you prevent, you know, not pass the, the virus on to others, but it may possibly protect you. And I think of my own life and it's constant sewing and sewing. When you say like, when I was 20, I would have thought by the time I was 70, I would be like a grandmother, you know, I'd be living with, with a husband. But like, life throws you curves, right? And you just, you learn to adapt. You know, when you start out thinking, this is when I go, okay, so I'm not married anymore. So I continue my life as a single person. So, you know, um, you move here, maybe it didn't work out, you move there, but it's sewing and unsewing. That's part of the anxiety of life, but also part of the joy of life and part of the learning. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you for that, Lauren. And there's some people who might like the idea of never unsewing, that we merely keep sewing and we can just keep that past over there. Um, and there's other who's, who might like the notion of unsewing. Now, as we'll see next week, um, the reason unsewing is a part of the malacha because the malacha has to be constructive is that the unsewing is only done to resew, right? Just like we said about untying, the untying was only done to retie. Now, uh, um, uh, it's, and so Lauren, thank you for that. And, you know, if you've ever had a C-section, think about the notion of unsewing as a process of birth. Mm -hmm. 
it, it you know the, the 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 same scar the same wound is going to be reopened um you're gonna uh i mean it's not physically going to be an unsewing right but after a woman is um is cut open um she's going to be sewed together i mean sometimes i mean i i mean i mean i i I assume the medical practice is still literally sewing. I mean, our, our last C-section was two years ago, uh, and that was a sewing process. Um, and so it's not literally an, un, an unsewing, but you can view it that. They're basically take, taking an, a sewed together uh, uh, wound, uh, incision, and, uh, and reopening it. And so that's kind of interesting to think about that as a birthing idea, to unsew to give birth to new creativity. Yes, uh, uh, Andrea. Um, so, um, uh, I'm a textile person, so I always, I remember this, um, piece of the uh, Masakate, and I think in the Talmud, when it talked about it, um, it talked about in the curtain as if there was a worm in the curtain and a tear that they had to, uh, lengthen the tear in order to sew it back. So extending this idea of stitching together, perhaps our own lives in community and extending it. In India, there's a textile form called kanta. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's all many pieces, scraps of fabric that are beautifully sewn together in a larger quilt. And if you think about this as an ongoing dynamic process from individuals to community to larger, covering the world in some etheric realm, that this is an ongoing process of ripping out some places not working and tearing it back together or our own creative process in creating community and how it connects up where the edges join others, you know. So it's really uh, quite a wonderful um, image uh, in extended dimension in all directions, really. Yeah, very powerful. Thank you for that. Something that emerged um, while you from 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 that as well is to think about the tearing we do in mourning. Because the, in, in, in our Malacha next week, it's not only unsewing, it's also, it's called Korea, it's called ripping, tearing. When traditionally, um, I mean, so um, uh, in, in, in the liberal Jewish world, um, uh, people don't like uh, uh, tearing garments. So they, they get ribbons, they tear ribbons. But in the, in the, in the traditionalist realm, people actually tear their shirt. Um, you tear your shirt. Um, maybe there's people in, in, in the liberal sphere as well, but in all my experiences in the liberal sphere, there's usually these funeral homes have like a ribbon, um, not passing judgment on either approach. Um, in any case, whatever the tearing is, a garment, a ribbon, um, this tearing as a sign of mourning. And then if you think about that ripped garment or that ripped space, um, we're trying to externalize uh, what, we're, what we experience internally make externally apparent the ripped, the brokenness, the ripped nature on the inside. And then here we might say, and this might sound a little bit too opportunistic, but can healing ever be generative, right? It can never be totally reparative um, in that we never fully heal. Um, but can there be something creative or generative that emerges from healing? And um, one of my teachers says, when your parent dies, assuming there was some degree of a loving relationship there, um, the lights go out. This is my, you might say this for any for anyone you love who dies. The lights go out, and the lights never turn back on. You merely learn how to get around in the dark, right? And many people in in mourning may wish for the lights to go back on, but they but they can't. 
It's just in that, at least within that relationship, um, the lights stay out and you learn how to navigate. Um, and so I wonder in that, um, in that realm, if there can be something um, creative or generative that emerges from the healing space, um, I mean, in, in exercise, I'm not uh, an exercise buff anymore like I once was, but, um, you know, we talk about actually breaking down, actually tearing down muscle fab- fibers um, in order that they, they repair more strongly. I mean, that's the idea. You push yourself harder than you did last time to destroy the muscle fiber and that it rebuilds stronger. Um, could mourning or, um, or pain be viewed in such a, a, a way um, that this, this type of, 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 of tearing actually leads to emotionally something, something new? Okay, someone else, please. Yes, hi, Carol. You're still on mute, Carol. Me? Okay. Carol, yeah. Uh, hi. Um, I find it interesting that in this um, session, we're talking about sewing, and yet the discussion is more about unsewing. Uh, sewing to me is more positive, maybe, or well, in the heat, in the tearing, and then coming together again is a different subject altogether. So I, the sewing, we have to learn how to sew. We have to learn how to live together. We have to learn how to bring ourselves together, keep us sane, keep ourselves sane, and things. I think sewing is just as important as unsewing or tearing. Yet we tend to, in this discussion afterwards, we're leaning towards the neg, you know, not necessarily the negative, but we're getting away from the sewing. Great. Okay. Uh, great. Carol. So I, 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 before responding, I see Vicky's ready to share. So Vicky, jump in. Okay. I actually want to say just a couple of things. First of all, I had the same reaction that Carol did about the unsewing that it's a negative. I like the idea when we talked about knots, about not necessarily untying the knots, but we were loosening them. Um, but going back to where Andrea was with the, um, using the metaphor of a quilt, I think really is for me, very meaningful. If you look at your life as a quilt and go back to what you talked about with Kula in terms of experiences, that all of our experiences, whether we're moving towards something or moving away from something, um, changing the way we approach how we do a ritual or you know, doing it in exactly the same way, it's all part and parcel of who we are and our experiences make up our whole, you know, it's constantly constructing or reconstructing our identity and adding to embellishing, embroidering, uh, that quilt. And I don't necessarily know we have to tear out a piece of the quilt, but perhaps just, you know, move on and make something else. You're uh, talking about losing parents too. I think that you're not, you're never going to take the, the piece of the quilt out that was your parents, but you are going to learn, as you said, how to navigate the world without them being here, but then being here in another way or in another dimension, however you come to terms with that. Mm. Thank you so much. Thank you both so much. That's really powerful. Okay, um, uh, great. So uh, lots to say there, but let's keep going. There's more hands. Rabbi Mark. Yeah, Rabbi Biller. Um, so someone has a question. In the, at the beginning of the hour, you mentioned um, that all thoughts come from God, so they're all interconnected. So I'm thinking a lot of psychology and coaching, 
it's often looking for the false thought that you want to undo to free up your full self or to free up the you know, the fuller, more complete thought. So how do you, how do you how do you put that together? The idea of false thoughts, and then the idea that all thoughts are from the source. Oh, that's awesome! I love that. Right, because it, in cognitive therapy, the big buzzword is thinking errors. Right. Those who are are very committed to cognitive therapy um, think that the main the the main challenges we have can be resolved by examining our thinker thinking errors. I mean, the the, right. mo the most obvious cases are 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 the are the things we tell ourselves that have words like always and never. Um, these are the things that we tell ourselves that um, are simply not true and, and under scrutiny can be dismantled. Um, and so, yeah, so how do we, uh, yeah, and, 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 to, and to raise the ante on your, on your uh, approach here, um, what about things that are simply false? Um, you know, lies or things that are, are factually incorrect, um, you know, to go, you know, to, or our evil ideas. And, um, and that's an interesting question, um, you know, because most certainly the, the Hasidic thinkers think that Machshavot uh, Ra'ot, uh, that evil thoughts are also from God um, right. and can be elevated, right? For example, um, I mean, the most classical sense, as you know, Rabbi Biller, that emerges that the Yetzir Hara is also a gift because the Yetzir Hara is to be channeled. They say there would be no sex and there would be no business if there wasn't Yetzirah, evil inclination, because they assume that sex emerges from a, a form of, of, of self-fullness and that business desire, uh, business desire emerges from self-needs. And so they're identifying their Yetzirah being um, a concern with self rather sure. than a concern with other. And so we do need to channel that, that, that actually to keep the world going, we do need self-interest. Um, and so they, they embrace and celebrate that. Um, and they also think this in regards to the worst things in their mind, like a Vodazara, idolatry, um, that such, such, such powers can be elevated and channeled. Um, now, what to do when something, it's a great question, and, and Rabbi Bill, I'm actually going to put the question back to you. Um, in a case where someone has thinking errors that are blocking their fulfillment, are blocking their relationship, um, uh, the, 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 the healthy state of their relationships, um, something that is blocking their actualization spiritually or in other realms, um, how do we understand that as having been in a spiritual opportunity, right. but also a something to overcome? I, I wonder if you have a thought on that. Yeah. Well, I mean, w w one is uh, what can you learn from looking at the, quote, wrong thoughts you've had? I actually have a spiritual mentor who will say, how has that thought helped you? You know, there have been instances when that's been a good thing. Where has that been good? So, you know, it opens up possibility of what we think is evil also has a kernel of good that's a, yeah um, amazing amazing like let's say a thinking error which is common in in uh in partnerships uh you know intimate partnerships is um well I, I these are always complicated whenever you talk about relationships it's complicated so they're always over generalizations but let's take a particular case where one is never kind of feels their partner feels their partner gives them enough 
right? And there's a thinking error. They always are thinking of themselves. They're never doing this and that. And over and overcoming a sense of entitlement um, can actually, and looking back at one's childhood can actually have a, 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 a deep liberating effect of realizing how one's discontents and entitlements and, and blame uh, of others around this uh, can 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 be liberating in all kinds of spheres. So right. So so seeing the gift of the thinking error as mm-hmm. if one can overcome it, then it opens up a whole new, a whole new space. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So so much more to say about that. Um, and 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 to be sure, um, one can reject this idea that all thoughts are from God and are interconnected. This kabbalistic idea, which I think is very powerful, one one might take a, a different approach. Eric, uh, Eric, you wanted to jump in here. Uh, yes, thank you. I've, this conversation has been really eye-opening. I think the analysis and interpretations here have been wonderful. Um, your, your quotations about the different scholars have been great, but there's one thing that I've noticed, and that none of the scholars that you cited seem to have conflicted with each other on the interpretation of sewing. I am curious, like when you have Hillel and Shamaz, for example, where they've gone back and forth over different what you can and can't and then different interpretations, have you seen are there scholars where they have com- conflicting analysis or interpretations on the notion of sewing? Great. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. So those will emerge in the, in the technicalities around um, around uh, permanency, which two objects being uh, infused together are. Um, have indeed created a permanent, uh, a, a permanency, uh, something kayam, something lasting. Generally, that's considered to be 24 hours. We had the same issue with tying over the last few weeks around why tying a shoe is generally assumed to be an unlasting thing. Um, or as we'll see next week, there are those who go so far as traditionalists to say that tearing applies to like opening a box of cereal. And so there are people who will open their boxes of cereal before Shabbat begins so as to not tear open a package, right? And so, um, and so, too, so, so some of it has to do with permanency and some of it has to do with um, what, is, what, is become, what is fused together, right? As we said, most will assume that safety pins or Velcro would not be an act of tofare, of sewing, because um, they're not fused together. But... Um, I don't know enough of the logistics, but um, we, we might be able to think of another act of fusing together, which would be debatable. Has this been fused together or is this still separate? Like crazy glue versus my child's, um, what do you call children's glue, right? If my child has children's glue and they put two things together, it, has that been stuck together in some kind of lasting way? Or is it kind of assumed that a child two hours later is going to pull it off anyways <laughs> and it's going to come it off? And so here the disagreement is really kind of on the technical side primarily um, as to what is sewing what is fused together, what is lasting. And there too, I think there could be meaningful conversation um, around um, uh, what in our life has been sewed together in a permanent fashion and what has been sewed together kind of intended to be unsewn or uh, intended to be loose in some sense. uh, th- uh, that emerged for us last time as well, as to which knots do we want to be really tight and which knots do we want to be loose? 
So, uh, so thank you for that. Indeed, indeed, um, uh, Eric, it's an important point because there is always debate, as you rightly pointed out, around defining the malachot. Someone else. So I just uh, had a thought, and I don't have a conclusion, but wouldn't it be in reference to this that vows, contracts, pledges come into it, and one can annul them when that's like a whole right. other subject, mm -hmm. but it somehow relates. Yes. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting, um, that's a really interesting point of how we think about contracts and how we think about promises and, and commitments. I mean, what does it mean to unsew a promise or a contract? You know, it's like today, <clears throat> Arizona is an at-will state, which means um, people can um, uh, break a contract on either end. Um, at any um, at any moment, an employer, an employee, um, and uh, and and the rights to divorce, the rights to, you know, in Jewish law, um, I, I, I if I recall, I can't remember if it's three or six. I'm pretty sure it's six. Um, you're not allowed to make a contract that lasts more than six years. Oh no, of course it's six, uh, and the reason being slavery. Um, that um, uh, to make a commitment more than six years was what a, a, a slave would do. I mean, they didn't, obviously a slave didn't commit, but to be bound for more than six years would be a slave-like commitment. Were you able to get uh, it off? Oh, somebody took them. Uh, Her, uh, I think, yeah, there, there I go, thank you. Um, so, uh, and so contracts should be shorter. What does it mean to make a lifelong contract? Um, what does it mean to make a lifelong commitment? to someone or to something. So yeah, that's a really interesting, uh, that's a really interesting point. Someone else? Yeah, and Carol and Vicky's points were really well taken that um, we, it, we so quickly jump from, um, uh, uh, from Tofair, from sewing, uh, to our Korea of, 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 of unsewing next week, but it, to just focus its, uh, itself on the, on the beauty and power of, of the sewing itself. Someone else with a question or thought? Julie, it's Cheryl, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, what about Kol Nidre to go along with the um, yes with the uh, what, what was just said about uh, revoking vows or annulling vows? I mean, you yeah, I, I love that. I, that was exactly what I was thinking, and I was deciding whether or not to go there. So thank you for going there, Cheryl. Um, of course, Kol Nidre is one of the things that anti-Semites loved historically. Uh, anti-Semites loved Kol Nidre because Kol Nidre shows why Jews aren't trustworthy. Jews are Jews are in there, their holiest day of the year. And what are they doing? They're annulling all their commitments and vows, right? They're in there saying they don't have to honor any of their promises and commitments. They're given the legal license to break um, to break such um, such contracts. Um, and um, uh, but of course, um, the way I've always understood Kol Nidre is um, once again, uncommitting in order that we can more intentionally commit. 
Um, what we're saying in Kol Nidre, it's so strange that it's the pinnacle of the Jewish calendar in many ways, and yet it's so um, uh, it's so unromantic, it's so unspiritual in a sense. I mean, the, I mean, obviously the melody, the experience is so powerful for many of us, but it's kind of like reading the ketubah at a wedding. It's kind of like a similar kind of thing, you know. And so, um, what does it mean to stand there and say, uh, you know, I'm I'm annulling myself of these, uh, and and I think part of it, another you know, the other approach that we're talking about here, is that this is about being gentle to ourselves, that we give ourselves the license on Yom Kippur to be aspirational, in terms of our moral commitments, because we know we're we're not going to meet that bar, right? We should always aspire to do more than we can, and understand that we can then be gentle with ourselves and annul those commitments that we couldn't reach, right? And ask for God for the forgiveness for that which we couldn't reach, right? We can, we can always, you know, as they say in the business world, um, you know, uh, under promise and over deliver, right? <laughs> tell, tell your boss that you're only gonna, you know, get 20 people to your event and whoa, is this great? We got 30 when you really hoped for 40, right? Um, and so under promise and over deliver on sales and whatever the case is. So you can, it really looks impressive. Um, so, but, but, but spiritually we want the opposite. We wanna, we're gonna over promise and under deliver. We're gonna go into Yom Kippur saying, I'm gonna over promise. I'm gonna be godlike. I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna do more mitzvot. I'm gonna give more tzedakah than I ever gave. I'm gonna be kinder and more gentle and do all these things. And then we're going to arrive Yom Kippur and we're going to hit our chest and say, oh my goodness, I didn't, I didn't live up to that. And we're going to be hard on ourselves. And then we're going to be gentle on ourselves and say, you know, it's okay. It's okay. Why is it okay? Because I'm going to overstrive. It's not okay if I, if I, if I underpromised, but if I overpromised, it's okay. What about, I mean, it, 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 it's kind of a do-over. It's the do-over. So it, to go to the metaphor of the quilt, we don't necessarily want to take something away from it but you could just add on to it and say, this is our chance to do over. Just This is our chance to add on to the, the fabric of, of our lives. Mm, very nice. Yeah, very nice. Yes, the do over. You know, uh, I, I, some of my... Uh... Some of, some of my friends who are grandparents have talked about raising grandchildren that way. Okay, I made some mistakes with my kids, but now uh, I get a do-over as a grandparent. <laughs> um, I have one rabbi in particular who was like, always says, whether it's true or not, that he was never home for their kids. He literally prioritized every wedding and funeral over anything major happening for their kids. And sometimes rabbis are, are asked to do that. Um, uh, in any case, he, he said, I mean, he... Uh, as someone who is, you know, takes a, a big burden upon himself, and he says, "Okay, now as a grandparent, I'm going to go the opposite way." Um, so uh, yeah, so we get we get these do-overs. <laughs> um, now, of course, not everyone has to, you know, paint it so drastically. Um, but do-overs are really amazing, and just as we wish to have those opportunities for do-overs, to grant other people that opportunity as well. So, friends, um, I wish you a Chag Urim Sameach, a beautiful festival of lights that this, these candles should give us all resiliency and hope and faith and courage to continue to sew a beautiful tapestry of humanity, of the Jewish people, of, of uh, families, of ourselves, of what we're contributing in this world, not necessarily from an ethical perspective only, but from an aesthetic perspective from the artistic perspective of what we produce each day, from every stitch of the shoe, 
from every act we do in our day that we consider to be service towards the other, that those stitches should be acts of love. And as we learn from the candles, when we share light, our own light is not diminished. When we sew for others, our own tapestry is not um, lessened, but in fact enhanced. Have a great day. Chag Urim Sameach.